a mom came up to me after a, a parenting talk and she said, my daughter has been diagnosed with anticipatory anxiety. And I was like, that's not a thing. This is not a thing. It's merely just a description of how overachieving perfectionism, a obsessive sort of type A need to do things really well makes you feel anxious. This is nothing new. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. So, hey, Robin, we got a few questions recently about something called high-functioning anxiety. Hmm. A new label du jour? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a new label du jour, and I think it's something that people are curious about. The questions that I got came from young people. I think they're hearing it. So I think we need to break that down a little bit. I think we need to do a little myth-busting, and we need to do a little talking about labels and diagnostic categories. Buckle up, people. She's got some opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just tell you about sort of this high-functioning anxiety thing. I did a little research, and I tried to find out, like, who coined that term? Where did it come from? I couldn't really find that. It's certainly been around probably for about a year, maybe, maybe less than that, maybe half a year. And I'm wondering if it's connected to a term that we use now that's called high-functioning autism. You remember there used to be a term called Asperger's, which was a description of a kind of a type of anxiety where people were really high functioning and they got rid of that term and now they refer to it as high functioning autism. I think that maybe high functioning anxiety came from that. It certainly sounds awful similar, doesn't it? And then the other term I thought of is how we refer to people sometimes as a functioning alcoholic, right? Right. Like my dad was a functioning alcoholic. My mom was a high functioning alcoholic. So it's not that this language hasn't been around, but I think the way that it's getting discussed now is that it's become sort of another label or another category. And now my concern is because I'm hearing young people using it, that they're saying, I have high functioning anxiety. This is not all that different. In fact, it's not different at all from anxiety. It just means the way it shows up, and sometimes it refers to the level of impairment. But when I hear people talking about this high-functioning anxiety, and when I look up the description, because there were a lot of articles about it that listed the traits of people with high-functioning anxiety, I'll tell you, sitting in front of my computer, there was a lot of, I was sighing a lot. There was a lot of sighing. (laughs) I just wonder if you were sighing in your head. Or if you were sighing and your cat heard you. What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) I just wonder, I just wonder how much you sighed and how much this not frustrated you, but this is predictably like a sore spot for you. Yeah. Just before we started recording today, we were talking about people always wanting to think that they're unique. Their Mm -hmm. situations are unique. Their struggles are unique. And when we sort of embrace that viewpoint, 
it impairs us from fully accepting what's impairing us. What I'm hearing is a teen, if a teen is saying this, it's just like, I'm very anxious, but I'm still making really good grades, Mm -hmm. right? I'm hearing this like defensive teen saying like, I don't have panic attacks to the point where it's interfering with my studies Mm -hmm. or my gazillion activities. So I don't want you to judge my productivity but I'm anxious. Yeah. Well, and also it's that there's a level of anxiety that's normal. There's a level of anxiety and stress that's a part of going through certain periods of life. And when I hear young people start saying, well, I have high functioning anxiety, it's just another label or an identity that they're taking on as a way to sort of set themselves apart. It's really important to just recognize that high functioning anxiety is not a separate thing. It's not a diagnosis. A mom came up to me after a a parenting talk and she said, my daughter has been diagnosed with anticipatory anxiety. And I was like, that's not a thing. This is not a thing. It's merely just a description of how overachieving perfectionism, a obsessive sort of type A need to do things really well makes you feel anxious. This is nothing new. And if you are somebody who feels really anxious and gets a lot of stuff done, that's also not something that's new. This is how anxiety works. Or atypical. Yeah, it's not atypical. Right. It's always sort of what are the skills that you need to build? What are the things you don't know how to do? What are the patterns that we want to interrupt? And so when somebody says, oh, I have high functioning anxiety, If it were a commercial on TV, you know how they always like to make it, I have high-function anxiety, also known as HFA, right? It's just we don't have to make it that separate. We don't have to make it different from any other anxiety symptoms that we feel. You know, when I was thinking about this, I was like, well, there are people that I have treated that have such severe anxiety in social situations that they can't get a job, they can't communicate with other people. Sometimes people are so anxious that they're not able to leave their house. When we're talking about this high-functioning anxiety thing, we're talking about a lot of people that do well in their careers. You know, I jokingly said, if you want to find high-functioning anxiety, just go to med school. These are people that are really good at getting stuff done, but they feel really anxious. This is, I'm in a situation in which there are a lot of demands. I'm capable of doing this. I'm capable of meeting the demands of my life, and I act as if I am on the bomb squad every day. Because remember, anxiety likes to turn everything into an emergency. So if you are terrified of throwing up, then every time you get a stomach ache, you turn it into an emergency. If you are terrified of making a mistake, if you are terrified of getting a bad grade in a class, if you are terrified of not needing approval, I remember talking to this one girl who had decided that she had to get into this one highly selective school or else her life was over, right? There was just one school that she needed to get into and she was very anxious about it. And with this high functioning anxiety, what you're turning into an emergency is making a mistake, not being perfect, not being the top of your class, not being the star of your debate team. Debate team, right. So it really is no different than any other type of anxiety. 
this type of fear, this type of worry isn't one that really supports avoidance, although it can support procrastination like perfectionism always does. It's usually something that supports working harder, doing more, being obsessive, staying up all night doing your homework. Instead of avoiding something, you try and keep up and keep up and keep up and keep up. You're afraid of failing, of screwing up, of disappointing people, of not being the star. That's just the content of this. It's not a separate thing. It's not a separate thing. When we come back, I think we should talk about how it's actually hindering someone's ability to understand and manage their anxiety. Okay. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. 
Okay, so now back to the show. So Lynn, I hear two things when a teenager, a high-performing teenager is wanting to adhere to this label. It's comforting to them because it's separating them from a group that they have imagined they don't want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And there could be other, maybe they have family members whose anxiety has manifested in different ways or a classmate Mm -hmm. who needs a lot of accommodations and they don't want to be that person. Right. So there's a distancing from other people around them whose anxiety shows up differently. Mm -hmm. If a teenager came to you in September and said, I have high functioning anxiety and I want to work with you because I'm about to go off to college and I have to do even more. The therapy goal, I would assume, I mean, you fill in the blank, but at some point you want the therapy goal for that teenager to drop the label. You don't want her thinking about that anymore. Right. And really also the therapy goal is for her to look at the patterns that keep this going. You're exactly right, is that one of my concerns with this label being bantied about as it is, it's going to become the humble brag of the totally obsessive type A personality, right? Oh, uh, you know me, I'm one of those high-functioning anxiety people. What I want the therapy to be about is how are we going to look at the same patterns that show up? If you are a very high-functioning, type A, obsessive, perfectionistic, anxious person, that means that you probably ruminate. It means that you're incredibly rigid. It means that you're very catastrophic about making a mistake and what other people think of you. The patterns are the same. I remember talking to a woman, and she came up to me after a talk. She was a physician and she said, you know, I'm listening to you talk about anxiety and I'm here because I really want to make sure that my kids aren't anxious. And she said, the way you're talking about this, I never really thought of what I do as anxiety. I just thought that I was really capable of getting a ton of stuff done. And I was really proud of that. But now I'm recognizing that I'm really controlling and perfectionistic and I'm totally scared of me screwing up or my kids screwing up. And she went on to describe how she lived her life, trying to make sure that everything went perfectly. She never really saw that as an anxious pattern, but it absolutely is. There's the rigidity, the need for certainty you know, as we say, controlling outcomes, which is one of the things you often point out. That's what we want to look at is not how this thing is different, but how it's the same. Yes. Yes. How it's the same. Yep. For the people who are familiar with the Matrix film series, Mm -hmm. uh, have you seen those movies? No, I was just talking about that last night with my son, actually. And he said that I wouldn't like it, but carry on. You probably wouldn't. Yeah. Basically, like the glasses that are ripped off your face that everyone is forced to wear in this futuristic world. Mm -hmm. Then you see the world for as it really is versus that. And I just think that that's kind of a very powerful moment. If you're not trying to make your problems, your patterns unique to you, but if you are able to acknowledge the humanity Mm-hmm. in these patterns. Mm-hmm. It enables you to understand everybody on such a deeper level, which I think can be incredibly beautiful and useful. Right. And connecting, right? I mean, this is what we're talking about. How do we connect with humanity? One of the things that as I was reading these descriptions and these articles about dealing with your high functioning anxiety, 
I was really just struck by it's about trying to create a false persona that you hide behind so that people don't see what's going on inside of you, that you don't show your faults or your flaws. And you come up with a way to sort of be so competent and so high achieving. It's tricky in this world. And I've talked about this so many times. We love this type of achievement in our high achievement culture. We love a perfect 10. We love the person that gets everything done. And I think if anything, and we're talking about this high achievement anxiety, it really is an opportunity for people to step back and say, am I really just putting on this persona of achievement because I'm so afraid of what people will think about me, what they will see? that people will see my imperfection. That's what I see all the time. Right. I don't want to be negative, but if you were to take this outside of anxiety and you were to think about the applicable times you refer to somebody as a high-functioning alcoholic, Mm -hmm. what you're basically implying is at this point, this person's addiction has not intervened and disrupted that person's ability to go to work or Mm -hmm. ability to be in family relationships. And the key phrase there was at this point. Right. But I will tell you that when somebody is described as a high functioning alcoholic, to me, that means more so it hasn't impaired their ability to function outside at their job. If you talk to a family member of somebody who's a high functioning alcoholic, That person wasn't a great parent, wasn't available to be a loving and connecting spouse, wasn't available. It's sort of how how they're superficially viewed out in the world because they can get their tasks done. But what is it like inside the house? And that's what I see all the time. Like that doctor that came up to me, that physician that came up to me, looking at her life and looking at her house and looking at how perfectly dressed her children were. People would probably say about her, oh my gosh, she has her act together. I'm so jealous. How does she keep her house so perfect? And here she was sort of saying to me in in a moment of honesty, standing in an auditorium full of people, that it was really something she didn't feel like was sustainable. And she said to me, is this going to impact my children? Because she was dictating everything about their lives because it was so important for it to be perfect. Yeah. So a high-functioning alcoholic looks good, can hold it together at this time. But talk about somebody behind closed doors, doesn't feel so high-functioning, actually. It feels like the rest of the people that are struggling with addiction. It sounds also like you've referenced that at different points in the town where you have raised your family, Mm -hmm. you'll go to a graduation Mm-hmm. And honor society kids have been in your office. Yeah. The degree to which they are working and achieving mm-hmm. has had a mental health consequence. And that's incredibly common uh, in high schools. Not all of them, just usually a percentage of them. Sure. But it's exactly like you said, because of their anxiety, if they're getting a lot done, are they also getting a lot of connection with their friends and family? Correct. What's the price that we pay? What's the cost? Also, here's another concern that I have with this labeling of high-functioning anxiety. If you look this up online, which I did, I wanted to see what they were saying about it. There were lists of qualities that people have that were indicative of high-functioning anxiety. On Pinterest? (laughs) Maybe on Pinterest. (laughs) 
also just like these articles, like these articles done by these anxiety. I don't know what the who was writing anxiety these influencers. Yeah, the anxiety influencers. I started off sighing. I'll tell you, by the time I got to this stuff, it was full on eye rolling. I just thought this is so not helpful for young people to read this list. Let me just read the list and you'll understand what I mean. So these were some of the things that are indicative that you have this condition called high functioning anxiety, playing with your hair, cracking your knuckles. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on. It gets worse. Biting your lip. (laughs) One of the treatments for high functioning anxiety was to chew gum in order to avoid lip biting. Okay. Avoiding eye contact. That was something. Okay, wait, but there's more. There's more. Some of the other things that are indicative of you having high functioning anxiety is that you have an outgoing personality, you're punctual, you're proactive, you're organized, you're high achieving, you're detail oriented, you're orderly, you're active, you're helpful. You appear outwardly calm and collected, and I get that. That's the false persona. That's the one that I was like, okay, I can get that, that you're passionate and that you're loyal in relationships. This was the list of qualities. Now, some of these to an extreme degree, I can understand, are indicative of somebody who's really obsessive and needs to have things be a certain way. But loyal in relationships, passionate about things, active? If you are active, that means you have high-functioning anxiety. I just feel like this is a really slippery slope for people to go down, particularly if you're a teenager. I just think we need to stop for a second and acknowledge that you were not just citing peer-reviewed research. I was not citing peer-reviewed research. This sounds like a quiz of a teen magazine Mm -hmm. that I would have taken back in 1984. Yeah. It's not peer review because this isn't a thing that's being researched because it's a term that was made up. It's a term that was made up. Right. Made up by teen magazine editors. Maybe. I don't know. Like Cosmo Teen. Like, do you have high functioning? There was a quiz that you could take. Of course there was. Yes, there was a quiz. So I took the quiz and sadly it said that I have low self-esteem, which... I don't, everybody. I she don't have doesn't. I do not. I mean, I have my moments. I have my moments. But my self-esteem is pretty good. And it said something else about me that now I can't remember. I should have written it down. But the two qualities, I even said to my husband, I just took a quiz to see if I have high-functioning anxiety. And it says that I have low self-esteem. And it was something also like I have difficulty in relationships or something like that. <laughs> So I just want everybody to be careful about this. I want parents, as you're listening to this, if you've got young people, if you've got teenagers or college students or young adults, do not get sucked into this label. Do not. Do not take mental health advice from (laughs) boardpanda.com. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. When we come back, I think we should talk about this trend in other labels that are kind of equally ridiculous at the very least, not helpful as we're trying to help our kids grow and learn and mature. Labels have a dark side. So we'll talk about that when we get back. 
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, Lynn, what were you saying? All right, so... I just have to crack my knuckles. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) It is helpful for kids to recognize, it's helpful for young people to recognize that being obsessive and rigid and catastrophic and ruminating and being afraid of making a mistake and being afraid of getting criticized and being afraid of disapproval This is just another way that anxiety shows up. It's not another category. I think that there are a lot of labels that are popping up these days, and there really is a dark side to that. You know, I just read this list of all these ways. You could take this quiz, you could look at this list, and you could come to a conclusion about yourself. This labeling of our humanity, this labeling of our personality differences, this labeling of our emotional states is taking us down the wrong path. I'm seeing a lot of it happening. I think I've told you this. There was a therapist. She was talking about kids that were struggling with disappointment syndrome, right? That was a label. I don't know if she was trying to make it a thing. There's no such thing as disappointment syndrome. Disappointment. It's disappointment. It's not a syndrome. It's a feeling. It's a human experience. And then there's another one that I've been hearing about recently called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Okay. So this is sort of getting a little traction also. And what it describes as kids that have really strong reactions to rejection. Some kids, some people have a very, very difficult time with rejection 
They get very angry. Sometimes they break things. They throw things. They shut down. That is something that you want to address. But it is not this label. We don't have to say, well, I have rejection sensitivity dysphoria. What we want to say is my kid has a really hard time with rejection. It's a really painful thing. And so how are we going to help develop the skills that they don't experience that? Social media is a place where kids can experience rejection in real time in a way that's incredibly painful. Rejection hurts, absolutely. But we don't have to give it this label. We don't have to pathologize it. We don't have to teach kids that they have to come up with a label, a pathological label for every painful human experience that they're having. It's the same problem that I have now with the diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder, which has been now deemed as a psychiatric disorder, that if you're grieving after six months, then now we can diagnose you with another, yet another disorder. It's just not helpful. There's a trend in this direction because certain people are finding it useful. Mm -hmm. Well, it gives things a context, right? So it gives us a common language. So I understand that. I was talking to very important teacher in my life, and I was talking to him about when people get stuck in their diagnosis. And I said, how do you talk to people about it? And he said, well, you know, say we take the diagnosis of depression, right? Depression is a real problem, and it's increasingly more common. It's been around forever and ever. And so he said, he says to young people, a young person who's been diagnosed with depression, I'm glad that you got that information about you. I'm glad that you got some understanding about what's going on with you. It means that you're seeking help. It means that you are honest with somebody about what's going on inside of you. And so now we can figure out what are the skills, what are the patterns, what are the things we need to do to help you. But it doesn't mean this is who you are. And so I thought that was such a great way of saying it is really oftentimes enormously helpful to have this information. I have this thing called social anxiety, or I have this thing called obsessive compulsive disorder, which means that I have these really weird intrusive thoughts that have actually been scaring me, and I didn't know that this was a thing. Or I'm experiencing a depressive episode, which means that these physical symptoms I'm feeling or the way that I'm thinking, it's a real thing. And then the question is, how do we help you deal with those patterns? My fear is, and it's not just my fear, it's a reality because I hear it all the time, is that when we give young people these labels, then they begin to see that that's who they are. And people don't talk to them about it as if it's something that's a pattern or they don't put in the realm of a normal human experience. It becomes this permanent quality they have. It's this thing that now they have. Then the next problem is, then they begin to expect the world to accommodate it so that they don't feel these things. Or that they don't have to take ownership with this information to try and address it and work on those patterns. Right. So I have not heard this happening yet. I fear it's only a matter of time. Between somebody says, well, I have high-functioning anxiety or I have disappointment syndrome, or I have rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So that means that people around me need to make sure that they don't trigger my condition. And that's where this thing becomes problematic because if the expectation is that the world will adjust in order for you to manage these emotional reactions, 
that is not working. That's not working. It certainly doesn't work with anxiety disorders. You know, if we said there was this new thing called rotus ragus explosiveness, I know I just made that up. He's got road rage explosive disorder. So we need to make sure that when he's driving, nobody cuts him off or that he only drives on roads where there's not a lot of traffic. Yielding really throws him over the edge. So we're going to make sure that we avoid yielding. I know that sounds like an extreme example, but when we start taking these labels and we use them more than descriptive, because descriptive can be helpful, and we start saying this is who they are and the world has to accommodate it, that's when it becomes a problem. So say we were talking about high-functioning anxiety and we're saying this is a really helpful descriptor because what this describes is this describes somebody who's perfectionistic, who's really driven, who's really afraid of making a mistake, trying to prove themselves to the world and seek approval. That is a good descriptor. The problem with these things is when they are elevated to more than a descriptor and they become something that becomes an identifier, a label, a permanent quality, and then we need to treat it differently than we would any other type of anxiety issue or any other type of emotional management issue. That's my fear with this stuff. Yeah. So what you hope the listeners understand is that if you want to start categorizing certain types of anxiety or other types of things, they're kind of going in the wrong direction, right? Yeah. It's descriptive. If you say to me, I have social anxiety, then I know what the content is. If you say to me, I have emetophobia, which is a fear of vomiting, I know what the content is, right? If you say to me, I have OCD and it shows up, I mean, OCD does this a lot too, actually. There's all these subtypes of OCD, which is just content. Like I have relationship OCD. People talk about that. I have perfectionism OCD. It's descriptive. It tells me what the content is. But it doesn't change the way that we're going to look at big picture. How are we going to interrupt this process? And what are the things we need to recognize? If we're talking about high, if somebody says I have high functioning anxiety, which I'll tell you, a lot of the kids that I see, I could say like, oh, I'm going to diagnose you with high functioning anxiety. Then it just becomes, how do I help you interrupt that process? I think it's sort of summed up in this way. Someone says to you, I have high functioning anxiety as a clinician that tells you a bit about them, mm-hmm. but it actually does nothing to tell the person about their patterns. Exactly. Yes, that is so well put. Yep. And so then I have to help explain the patterns. I have to help them figure out how do you differentiate between when you've done enough and how do you tolerate uncertainty? How do you tolerate the inevitable judgment and approval or disapproval of other people? That gives me something that I can talk about. But a lot of young people come in and see me more and more, and they're really looking for what's wrong with them. It's not going to be very long before somebody comes in here and says, well, I think I have high functioning anxiety. It's only a matter of time. And my response to that is going to be, well, yeah, duh, because I know that you are a catastrophizer. I know you're rigid. I know you ruminate. I know you get obsessive. I know you don't know how to say enough is enough. And we're going to continue to work on these patterns. I don't care what we call it. I was just about to say that. I mean, not to plug 
the book, the anxiety audit, but think of how different and more effective it would be if instead of a teenager coming in to say to you, I have high functioning anxiety, a teenager came in and said to you, I am a ruminating catastrophizer. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that happens. I mean, I feel like that's what's really helpful. I mean, if you look like there are a few people have put things up on the podcast group or whatever, and they'll say, oh, I'm recognizing myself as a ruminator or, oh, I'm a catastrophizer. Like you recognize you tend to catastrophize. I've really got to pay attention to this busyness culture of how I get sucked into this. It is really helpful if we just step back out of these labels, if we stop trying to pathologize, label, and if we just look at the bigger picture. Say a family came into me and you know one of the family members had been really struggling with substances. One of them had really been drinking. Say a mom comes in and the children say, you know, when she comes home from work, she starts drinking and she's having several glasses of wine. And then by the time it gets to be about eight o'clock, she's already sort of passed out on the couch and we need help with our homework and she's not really available. And the mom says, well, but I still get up in the morning and I go to my job as an attorney and I handle this and I handle that. So I'm a high functioning alcoholic. Those kids don't care, right? They don't care. So if somebody says, well, I have high functioning anxiety, how is it impairing, how is it impeding you connecting and moving through your life? That's what I want to pay attention to. I don't care what the label is. And a lot of the times when we put these labels on things and we try and categorize them, the way it's going right now, because we are in this current environment, is that young people in particular are taking these labels, they're self-diagnosing, they're identifying, and they're saying stuck. And that's when I hear this high-functioning anxiety thing going on, it sort of pushes that warning button in me that we really need to pay attention to what we're doing with that. Lynn, I have been binging the latest season of The Crown, and I had this epiphany when watching it with a softer lens because of Queen Elizabeth's passing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people were so drawn to her because she represented the best example of emotional regulation in their lives. Mm. Yeah. Like if you're living a life of chaos or if you don't have that person in your life that's so steady. A lot of us in the United States were a little surprised at how incredibly grief stricken people were at the Queen's passing, like how much it impacted them. But I think you're right. Like she sort of represented this emotional steadiness, didn't she? Sometimes to a point which was not so helpful. Right. Our emotional steadiness icon is Fred Rogers. Yes. The queen was regulated to the point where she supplanted because that was the British way. I mean, that was how she had to be. Yes. But if we could only fantasize about a movie where the queen had met with Fred Rogers every week instead of the prime minister. I know, wouldn't that be that? Like if every week they had a meeting and he came in and helped her with her emotional connection and her emotional literacy. And to watch that awakening happen, mm-hmm. like it did for the Rolling Stone journalist. Yeah, which is a great movie. I love Fred Rogers. There's Won't You Be My Neighbor, that was the documentary. And then that other movie, that's what it was. It was him meeting and chipping away at this person's walls and teaching him how to be emotionally connected. The movie gets better every time you see it. 
And I just encourage everyone to watch it a first, second, or third time. I agree. So you can watch The Crown and you can see how emotional regulation works, sometimes too much. And then you can watch the Mr. Rogers movies and see what emotional connection and emotional literacy is all about. While still being regulated. While still being regulated. Ah, Fred. Ah, Fred. We miss Fred. (laughs) We miss Fred. Yeah, good old Fred. If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.